Hey gang, had a wonderful talk this week with Tim McElrath, lead singer and guitarist for Rise Against. Um, we talked about their mega hit, Savior, uh, how the song has 140 million YouTube views, which is just amazing. Uh, Tim talked about how Savior was just an album track, uh, how when they were in the studio it wasn't turning out the way he pictured it, and uh, it almost became a B-side and left off the album. Uh, Tim said a lot of times that he, when he writes music, it's like throwing paint against a wall, and it's only after it's done that he can step back and realize what he was writing. He touches on how much he loves recording with Bill Stevenson. Tim talked about when he's in the studio, and he realizes that a part is too high to sing and how that is the most embarrassing thing in life. Savior held the record for the longest running song on the alternative charts for many years. And we talk about how the album, uh, Appeal to Reason, was out for a year before Savior was released as a single, and the band, during that subsequent tour, never played the song, which is amazing. So for all this and a whole lot more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. We put out like a, a DVD back when bands put out DVDs. <laughs> um, right. it, year like in uh, it was years ago, like you know around two thousand and uh, six or seven, where we had a film crew uh, kind of follow us on the Warp tour um, and cruise around. And there's actually a funny scene in it where um, I'm I'm writing this song in the back lounge of the bus. Um, and so it's funny because we're I, I say it's funny because we're not really a well documented band you know we didn't like film everything we ever did like a reality show you know sure but sure just, but the, but this one moment just happened to be um the camera guy who was who was my old roommate and a good friend of ours and one of the reasons why we were so comfortable with him just like crashing on our bus he just walked into the back lounge and one morning i was playing on some little looper pedal thing and and i was playing what would eventually become kind of the quiet breakdown towards the end of the song before the final chorus and I was just looping that part over and over. And um, I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what I was doing back then. And I only looked at the DVD later and realized, oh, that was, that was the, the inception, or at least like the first seed of what will become the savior. It was that, that first, that quiet part where it just breaks down and I just sing, I don't, I don't hate you. And then right. the whole song kind of uh, built around that. So, so oddly enough, it's, it's, it's documented on, on film. Um, but that was where it started, and that was um, that was well before we went into do the record uh, appeal to reason that it appeared on. And so you you got this loop pedal going, and uh, was it just like uh, did, did did you think that that part was a chorus at that point, or did you have any idea what it was? Or you you just kind of knew knew you liked it. I knew I liked it, and I. It's funny because when I write, I don't have like an agenda when I write. And so sometimes I write stuff that's like just far outside of the rise against box or sometimes it's more like singer songwriter, or sometimes I'm just messing around on like, you know, my computer and all of a sudden there's something more electronic happening. And oftentimes I'm just trying to get music out, you know, an idea out. And I'm just kind of going down a road and not thinking about the song because I'm just as happy to write something that no one ever hears 
as long as I'm kind of into it. You know what I mean? It's like, if, it, if that's my morning is to write something, just a few chords that I think are really cool and a nice drum beat or whatever, then that's kind of satisfying to me. And so not all of those ideas become songs. And so this was one of those things where I was like, I was just happy to be playing guitar that morning and just, I thought these things all went together. And I didn't know if it was something that was going to be like Rise Against material or not. Um, and so it was just a like, a, like a, like I said, kind of like a guitar loop going over and over, just a weird idea. And then eventually it morphed into like um, the bigger song that it became. But honestly, it was also, it was also a song that I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of, uh, it never stuck out to me. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. like, and I think that, I think that'll probably, that'll be like the overarching theme of like our conversation now is like, I feel like this song and the rest of the guys will back me up on this. And, and so will our producer, Bill Stevenson, who I know, you know, um, this song was a sleeper for all of us. Well, you know, well we were, can, can, can I can I real quick interject? Yeah, That's so interesting. So interesting you brought that up because in my notes here, <laughs> when I was researching the song, uh, you know, "Reeducation Through Labor" was the labor was the first single uh, that mm-hmm. came out in August of '08 from the record, and then "Audience of mm-hmm. One" followed that in January of '09, and then "Savior" wasn't released till June third, and. Out of the thir- out of the thirteen songs on the record, it was number eleven. You usually don't put a hit single at number <laughs> bury it at number eleven on the record. So it's interesting you bring that up. Yes, that's yes. It, it was not something that any of us were particularly excited about. I don't think we. I never even thought of it as a bad song. Like when we heard "Reeducation Through Labor," um, it was one of those rare instances where even before we finished the record, we were like, "We love "Reeducation Through Labor." this is going to be our first single. And we actually, in the process of recording the record, we, we rushed that recording and had it mixed and mastered before we finished the record so the label could have it and start doing its thing with it. That's how wow. confident we were in re-education through labor. Uh, the other singles were things that we would choose along the way. It wasn't like a, a plan we had before the record came out. We just did the first single. And usually we kind of then decided what the second single was in was later. Um, and savior was just not a song that was, that was coming up in conversation. Um, there were a lot of songs in the record we were excited about and savior just wasn't one that was, that we were mentioning. Yeah, I kind of got that impression. You know, like I said, when I was p- putting some notes together on it, I was noticing, I said, 11th out of 13. And then, you know, of course, it was released a year. It was the, it was the third single from the record, released a year after uh, Reeducation Through Labor. And I said, I think this was a sleeper track that no one really thought that uh, it was going to have the reach that, that it ultimately, uh, ultimately had. Totally. I mean, I'll put it this way. We did the entire Appeal to Reason tour, like about whatever it is, like 18 months or two years, and we never played it live. We didn't even know how to play it live. We didn't even learn it. <laughs> like we had never. So we toured the entire Appeal to Reason record without ever playing Savior. And it was never, and it wasn't even like a, it wasn't some like tortured decision. We didn't even think about it. You know what I mean? It just didn't make the set list. It was just right. a song on the record that we liked, but it wasn't anything that what we thought was particularly special. And in fact, I was like averse to it. Um, I don't, uh, for a number of reasons. And so was, our guitar player, or I'm sorry, our bass player, Joe, who writes most of the songs with me. And so Joe and I, like, we, we, we don't always have a consensus on things in general. You know what I mean? Because that's just the way a band is. Yeah. But both, but both he and I were both kind of like shrugged our shoulders. We're like, eh, you know what I mean? And then there was a conversation even when we were um, doing appeal 
to reason we had extra songs for b-sides and we almost took savior off the record and oh, put it man. on the b-side and that was when <laughs> yeah that was when <laughs> our our booking agent Corey christopher who you know she doesn't really get involved but she's been with us for like almost since day one yeah that's when she picked up the phone she's like whoa 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 what's what are you guys doing here and we're like i don't know this song you know it's just not hitting us and there's better songs and She's like, no, like, I'm sorry, but that's that's a great song. That you should leave it on the record. Yeah, and, you guys, um, you guys almost lost the winning lottery ticket. <laughs> I know, I know. It really, from that point on, I really knew that I should not include myself in single conversations. Well, you include myself in like what songs go on a record. I need to like, I need to just back off. Well, you're you're so close to it, you know. And I, yeah. I brought that up, I brought that up before. You know, you get as an artist, you get so close to your own material that that you you. Sometimes you love them all equally. Other times you, you hate something just because you just, this isn't working. And someone else, like, you know, your agent came along and was like, no, 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 no. This song is, this song's special. This song's amazing. Um, you know, you touched on something a moment ago. You said, we never even played this song uh, on the tour and, and, and we didn't know how to play it. And some of the listeners uh, may be wondering, what do you mean you don't know how to play it? You recorded it. And it's fascinating. Right. You know, when you're in a band, you'll, you'll, you know, someone will write a song. Typically, a lot of times on an acoustic guitar in their bedroom at three in the morning. And six months later, they go in and they record the song with a producer and they put the song together in the studio. But as an actual band, you know, you didn't, you know, run through it and actually play it. So, um, a lot of times, right. uh, as bands, we have to learn our own songs <laughs> after we record uh, yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's, yeah you, you know that. And I think that, that, and I guess that's what like listeners should understand. It's like, yes, we, we, you know, I could probably work my way through a song that, uh, that, that any song we've written before. But you kind of need to like know tempo and you need to know like the changes. And then you may have added some things in the studio that were kind of like, fly-by-night parts that got added in there that you sort of forgot that you did, you know, mm-hmm. that were sort of spur-of-the-moment stuff. And so, yeah, those are all things that you got to bust out, you know, the, the record and start listening to it and be like, okay, what did you do here? What did I do here? You know? Right. And, and uh, I noticed this song is uh, tuned to uh, to E-flat uh, tuning. Yeah. Is, is that pretty much your standard tuning that you, you use or was it just for this particular track? Yeah, we switched to, after our first record, I guess I'll put it this way, only our first record is in standard E. And then yeah. everything else from there on out, we were all just like fans of hardcore bands. And we were noticing that like a lot of hardcore bands had a kind of a, a bit of a darker tone with this E flat as a vocalist. I certainly appreciated it. I never even considered that before. I was like, wait, we can tune a half step down. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, it definitely helps with the voice. And I mean, you, you got a high voice and you scream your head off as it is. So it, any little help you can get. Uh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a young man anymore. So those, those decisions you made when you were just a kid that you're expected to emulate on a stage somewhere in your 40s it's like you know all that yeah i know it too well um so you uh, you know you mentioned hardcore a moment ago and i know uh, you know the background that you came from and the scene in chicago and and the bands and and your early stuff um uh, a lot of it was just very aggressive uh, uh political and you know this song seems to me uh well that seems to me but uh this song uh appears to be a love song is is that is that what i'm I'm reading into here yeah and and you know it's you're hitting on a nerve here too because rise against has like our you know sort of your generic assumption of who we are as a band and how people see us is you know they see our name and maybe a gas mask and we're like a political like hardcore you know kind of punk band but um what you're noticing and something that we've always just known is that our biggest songs have often had nothing to do with politics. So like, yeah, our songwriting has always just been wide open. So I don't, I don't 
I don't, I try not to box myself into any sort of thing. Um, and I want to be able to write about whatever I want to write about. And the songs that have really taken off, um, a lot of them, uh, just have nothing to do with politics. And Savior is one of those. There's nothing really political about this. This is a love song. This is a kind of a classic love song. And so it's sort of, I guess, ironic that a band like Rise Against, like our most popular song, you know, <laughs> this doesn't really tie into the, what people think of, uh, as a band. But I also love that. I love that, like, we can kind of, I don't know, that kind of range is, is a fun thing to play with as a band. I like messing with people's conceptions or preconceptions of, of who we are. Well, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's awesome. And, it, you know, there isn't too many bands uh, that are as, you know, as aggressive as you guys that, that can have the word love in a song. And if they do, it comes off forced. And this doesn't come off forced at all. Uh, you know, I, I also noticed that this song... Uh, and, and for radio is one thing, but, uh, you know, it, it's four minutes, but it doesn't feel like four minutes. That's what's fascinating. Mm-hmm. To, that's what's fascinating to me about it. It doesn't feel like laborious at any point where I'm like going, okay, when's this thing over? Um, right. and we'll get it. We'll get into some of that in a minute later in the song. There's some parts that I really, really want to, uh, break down. Um, but you have the intro here. Um, uh, the first lyric is it kills me not to know this, but, uh, I've all, but just forgotten, what the color of her eyes were and her scars or how she got them. Um, so set this up. Was, was this um, autobiographical or was this kind of a, 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 a story of, uh, uh, of a love lost uh, between boy girl type thing? Or was this actual something that, that was going on in your life? That was something that I had written down that line before there was music inside like a journal. Um, and it just sort of, those words just kind of poured out of me and I didn't, um, I didn't write this about anybody uh, specifically, I guess. It was just, it was just kind of a love story that, I, that, you know, too many of us can all relate to. Um, mm-hmm. That was just kind of coming out to almost like a stream of consciousness. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't question it. I just kind of like, I, I, I went with it, but you know, it, but it wasn't like, there wasn't like a particular or a specific like story happening there. Yeah, and that's that's so cool. Uh, if I if I sit down and try to write, and I don't I don't uh, fashion myself as a lyricist by any means. I'm more of a of a chord melody guy, song guy. But uh, mm. if I were to sit down and try to write a story of love, I mean, it would just come off as the most verbatim cheesy thing in the world. I mean, I have to write, you know, I I have to write from experience, something that hit me, something personal, in, in order for it for it to become believable and and to, for me to deliver it as a believable vocal. So, I love. Right. I love when when songwriters can can express themselves in a, in a in the imagery of a story that yeah we've all been down the road of and, and heartbreak and etc. But this wasn't about an exact thing in your life. This was just something that you'd written in a journal and uh, that again yeah. so many so many people can can read the lyrics and and, and uh, listen to you sing them and relate to. Totally yeah, and I think that that's a that's a real thing. Like there are people that in your life who were really important to you in your life, but maybe you can't remember what color their eyes were. You know what I mean? Like things like that. You're just like, whoa, how did I forget that? Or you can't forget, or you can't remember their stories, things that you knew intimately. That's kind of how life kind of moves on, you know? And mm-hmm. things that things that were once you kind of thought that were like permanently etched in your brain, you're like, wait, that's that's a fuzzy kind of memory now, you know? And I think with my song, like, I appreciate what you said too, where you're like, if you try to write something specific, like a love song or whatever, like it sometimes comes off as like forced. My songs are in the writing it's always been kind of like just if I was a painter, it'd be like splattering paint onto a, a canvas, you know, and then only later did I realize what I'm making. And that's kind of 
the lyrics and the stuff I've, that I've written, I tend to just not think too much about what it is or what it's about. And I just like start writing. And it's only after it's written do I take a step back and be like, oh, I can see generally what I was writing about. You know, I can see a picture of it, you know, and maybe that helps me kind of tie it off and like put a few things in there to really like to bring it home. Wow. That, uh, the paint, that, that was a great analogy. That was really cool. I mean, cause I, 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 I can get that, you know, you're, mm-hmm. it's almost like a, a stream of conscious in your journal. You're just writing and, uh, then you go back and reflect and go, okay, now I know, <laughs> now I know right. where that was, now I know where that was coming from. And, totally. uh, yeah, or sometimes it takes somebody, sometimes it takes somebody else to tell you, sometimes it takes somebody else to be like, you know, for me that somebody else is often Bill Stevenson cause he's the guy behind the glass for me. And he's like, Oh, so Tim, I can, so you're saying this and this. And I'm like, well, actually I never thought about it that way, but I think you're right, Bill. You know, like they're just, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just so detached from it that it, it takes that someone else's perspective to kind of clue you into it. Right. Well, so your the first major uh, label record, Interscope, was 03. That was Siren Song. That record, uh, Garth produced that. And then was it the follow-up that Bill did? Was that the first one that Bill did? Yeah, he actually did the one before Garth, too. So he did our second record on Fat. Um, which was where we met Bill and worked with him for the first time. And then we signed to a major and we were thinking a lot, a lot of bands like, you know, like you guys or whatever, you get signed to a major. And I thought like, well, we're going to do one record and they're going to drop us, you know, cause there's no way this will last, you know? Right. And so we thought, we thought, let's go to this, you know, producer that's way out of our budget and do the one record, like go work at a fancy studio. And, you know, and we moved to Vancouver and did it with Garth Richardson and we did Siren, um, and it was it went well, but it made us miss Bill. It made us miss the Blasting Room um, and everything they do there. And so we, um, with the success of Siren, we convinced the label to send us back to uh, the Blasting Room and Bill Stevenson. Right, and and well, and that that's what I wanted to ask. So, do you remember when you brought this song in? You had you had all the tracks, and of course, to you guys, this was kind of just at, at best an album track, possibly even a B-side. Um, and you brought it in. Do you remember Bill showing any uh, initial enthusiasm uh, or, or any enthusiasm as you started to work on the track? You know, not particularly. I, I, can, I can picture actually he came to Chicago where we work at a studio called Gravity Studios in Wicker Park. We're doing some pre-production there. So we're just pretty much just playing him our stuff and just, he was tracking it. And then I had, and then I brought in Savior, uh, which we'd already kind of worked up into a song, but I hadn't yet locked into some of like the, I guess what people call the top line, like the, like the melody of mm-hmm. the vocals, and especially I knew what the choruses were going to sound like. I knew what the intro was going to sound like. I didn't have the verses down exactly. Um, and I'll tell you, maybe you'll appreciate this as a songwriter too. When I brought it in, we tracked the music and then I got into a vocal booth um, and I started singing the intro. And then I I sang the intro of the song. And then when I went to sing the first verse of the song, what I wanted to do was to sing it the same exact way, but just like an octave higher. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like my intro is like me almost talk singing, right? It's like really quiet. And my goal was to then go into the verse and sing that exact same cadence, like that melody, but just do it all on steroids. You know, right. just like, here's that same thing, 
almost as if you could sing that it kills me not to know that's like wait it kills me not like way higher and sure. that's when i realized in the vocal booth that it was way too high <laughs> <laughs> and that's the worst <laughs> and that's the worst and I, and I can remember the moment too because i remember we were at gravity and there was this it was bill in the vocal booth or bill in the sorry the control room me in the vocal booth and there was this young girl who was like a, an intern of sorts and she was there helping us out and I was about to get into this vocal and I, you know, I, you, you don't want to sing new stuff in front of people you don't know. Right. And so yeah. I, was, I was, I was like trying to like, I was trying to figure out a nice way to ask her to leave. Um, and I, and I, and I did, and I never did that. So I was kind of like, Oh, maybe she can just stay there. And then I got to the part and, and you know, this, when you get to the part that you can't sing and you try to sing it, there's few things that are more embarrassing in life. <laughs> oh yeah. It's brutal. It's brutal. It's brutal. And like, and you don't want like, there's only a handful of people in your life that you're willing to like try to sing something you can't sing in front of, you know? And that's for me too. And the bills, one of those people, I remember getting to that part. And I just remember it being so bad and bill being like, what is he doing? And then I'm, I'm totally embarrassed in front of this girl who's just like, there, like, you know, wrapping the cables and taking coffee orders. And so finally I was like, <laughs> Now I was like mortified and I remember like being like, I was like, Bill, I think we need some alone time. And he was like, and then he politely asked her to leave. <laughs> I really want to sing this song in my low voice from the start. And when the drums kick in, I'll sing the higher octave part. Hey Chris, that sounds like shit. Oh, uh, you think? Yeah, well, so so no, that was this during pre-production. This was happening. It was during it was during pre-pro. And okay, so 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 my question, real quick, my question yeah, is: in in pre-pro, now that this happened, did you think about changing keys in it so that you could do the octave change, have the have it have it low at the beginning, and then and then of course go go up higher to the octave for the for the first verse? Yeah. So we, we yeah, and that was that was Bill's suggestion too, and so he was like, "Well, what if we did this?" And we went with that, but then they made the intro really low and like not interesting at all. Um, you know, your vocal range is a certain thing where there's a there's a place where your voice is compelling and there's a place where your voice is just kind of monotonous and boring, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, it takes every singer to find that place, the proper amount of pushing it without pushing it too much, you know. And we tried that and that didn't work. And I'm telling you, we've, we've already talked about how how this song wasn't something that we were all like pushing for i'm telling you this moment was the inception where i started orphaning the child of this song this was the moment when it became difficult and when it became a problem to solve that i was having trouble solving mm -hmm. it made me kind of orphan the song at that point as soon as as soon as i couldn't do it the way i heard it in my head it's it, the song went, you know, more on the scrap heap for me. Oh, I can um, I can relate to that so hard because right. You, well, yeah, absolutely because when you lose interest in it and and you you already know that you love reeducation so much, you love audience mm -hmm. of one, you love these other tracks. You're like, I'm gonna put all my eggs in these baskets. This basket's right. empty over here. I'm I'm done. Um, and it's so weird. Typically, when I fight for a song such as this, and I do mm -hmm. really try to champion it and go, no, I'm not orphaning, I'm not abandoning this damn thing. When right. I do, when I do that, 
the song still never gets to where I want it to get. Very rarely, right. if ever. It's amazing right. this one did. Totally. That I, I exactly like it. It ended up being. I ended up having to change the entire verse, you know, to hear what you hear now. Um, it sounded nothing like the intro of the song, and because it was like this new idea, it felt like this. It felt like this aftermarket part on like a classic car. You know what I mean? It was like, it felt like it was just not right. And Bill sort of felt the same, you know what I mean? And so neither one of us were really championing it. Um, but we knew it was a good, it was good enough song. We knew it was like, had this great chorus, you know, we knew it was a special element that the record didn't have yet, like this big love song. And so, you know, we didn't scrap it completely, but it always made me kind of, the, the fact that I failed at that first verse made me like a little bit embarrassed about it and then the fact that i had to change it to make it work it made it something that i was like i didn't want to look look at it in the eyes you know what i mean i didn't want right. to like, go, look at it face to face and so that that became my split that was the moment where i started to split from this song and, and i didn't champion it the way it probably deserved to be championed right and of course now again so you your your agent Corey Christopher, whom I know, uh, right. wonderful wonderful person. Did did, Cor- did Corey hear the um, uh, demos or anything of this, or did she hear the final version and then tell you guys, no, this song is a smash? Or did or did or did she know? Did she she know before? She probably heard both. She probably heard the demos and then. It, but I remember when it was. I remember it was. It was after she heard the final version, and then she heard that we were starting to put it on a short list for a B sides. Yeah. That was when she kind of like stepped up and was like, <laughs> "No, this. What are you guys doing? You're making a mistake, you know." Well, if if you look at the tune right off, I mean, it, it's a pretty standard song until after the second chorus. So you got your intro, goes to the first mm-hmm. verse. You got a pre-chorus. Your first chorus comes uh, uh, back in instrumentation uh, for a moment. Hits your second verse, uh, pre-chorus, second chorus, and up till then, it's kind of. Uh, uh, for lack of a better word, just kind of like a, a, a standard uh, a heavy rock track. And then mm-hmm. then you get the first breakdown before what I call bridge number one, which is very interesting in this tune that there's two bridges. Or, yeah. or I think I think they're bridges, what I would call them. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And the first breakdown, I hear a little nod to the descendants with that weird chord before <laughs> the stop. Was that, did Bill have anything to do with that or was that you guys? Absolutely. I mean, like we're always trying to impress Bill <laughs> over there. And so that was a little descendants and a little bit of like, like only crime was really his band. Only crime was, sure. um, was really firing all pistons at that moment too. And like, we're listening to a lot of their records and they do a lot of that, like, you know, kind of dark jangly chords that are just discordant and, you know, off time. And I think that was kind of, um, our slight homage to that. Like we wanted well, the part where it was like just hitting this wrong chord like over and over. I think that first Only Crime record came out around 08, right around that time. Yeah. You know what? That would make sense because that, that's when they were probably like knee deep in it. Um, sure. Zach had just joined our band from Only Crime. So we actually stole Zach from <laughs> Only Crime with Bill's blessing. Bill was the first phone call. Zach was the second. <laughs> um, and then... So we were all like loving that only crime stuff, and Bill was really excited about it too. So he, you know, when we took a, when we would take breaks, he would play us the new only crime stuff, and it was like, oh, this, this stuff is so cool. It's like Black Flag meets The Descendants, you know, with Russ on vocals. Like there's great yeah. stuff here happening here. So I think we were a little bit, 
it was we were a little obsessed with that stuff too so it turned into this cool instrumental part Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Yeah, and I was I was super excited when Zach joined you guys because I, I of course knew him from the Hagfish days. And uh, right, yeah. When I heard he was joining you guys, I I, I loved Hagfish. I was so so underrated. Such a great band. Um, Absolutely. So you get this this crazy little nod to only crime descendants all. Uh, it goes into the bridge, and the, the bridge is interesting. It's the um, lyric is 1,000 miles away. There's nothing left to say, but so much left that I don't know. And it goes on from there. Um, that part doesn't sound too much different than a verse. You know, it's kind of it's kind of yeah. still hold, still holding on to the verse, but it is a departure after that weird chord. Um, and then there's this, out of nowhere, this temp, complete tempo change, this arpeggiated guitar part that goes on before what I consider is the second bridge, or I call a post bridge, which is the I don't hate you part. Um, when, how did that come about that arpeggiated guitar part? And it sounds like a time, a tempo, a tempo change there. Yeah. Oh man. We're, we're really good at tempo changes or bad at them, depending on how you look at it. Like we're, <laughs> we just, we're, we're constantly demanding them. You know what I mean? And so it makes Bill's life hell or he's just trying to like tempo map a song. Yeah. Um, but he's also, you know, um, he's very, uh, he's very religiously attached to the way we play a song. And so if, if he hears us slowing the thing down here or speeding up a thing here, he's good at kind of delineating whether that's a mistake or whether it's like, no, these guys want to speed up here. So who am I to stop them? You know? And so he'll, he'll do that in our songs. Um, but that, so that part, that arpeggiated part that you're talking about, the quiet breakdown, and I guess now it's like the, the second or third bridge. Um, that honestly was the part I was mentioning earlier, but that, was the inception of the song that was the first thing that i had almost like put together and then built the whole song around so i was always going to come back to that part it was always something that was going to happen because i was really i really liked the way um it sounded and 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 that's that's interesting because if i would have written that part or something like that part to me (laughs) that that would have started the song off that would have been like an intro right you yeah, know, and I, you, you, you like totally. kind of saved it for the bridge of the song that came in at two minutes and 20 seconds into the tune. And it's kind of out of nowhere. And it's just, but it breathes such fresh life because you can hear at the end of it, your vocal, you just speed up and boom. Now you're in the last chorus. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I love, so, so Zach had just joined our band too. And he joined a band where it was like me and, or Joe and I were very like, um, predominant songwriter sort of influences you know what i mean like joe joe comes in with great songs i come in with songs and we put them together and so for zach to get a word and edgewise to any of that i i, I acknowledge is difficult and in that rpg to part and in each of the pre-choruses there's a high guitar that goes and that was all zach adding that in there and it was one of the first times where like zach just kind of just contributed uh, to something that was kind of off script. And I was like thinking that's totally something that I would never write. And so something Joe would never write. And it was a cool contribution um, and a pretty catchy part of every pre-course. 
and, and a country go. part of that little part too. Oh, that's a cool little uh, aside there that you, you shared with us because, um, you know, when you're a new, you guys were well established by this point. So, it, you know, yeah. and you got two primary amazing songwriters and lyricists in the band and here you are the new guy. Uh, you know, I'm sure he was, may have been trepidatious too about not wanting to overstep his bounds too at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know, as, as band members, you're also kind of like, you're protective of like the DNA of your band, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're so afraid that anything could compromise it. And so you get like kind of trepidatious about letting everybody into it, even if you're excited about their idea. You know what I mean? And with Zach, he's such like a, you know, you know, Zach, he's just a guy you like, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. So you, you want to like, you can't not like Zach. Can't <laughs> not like Zach. <laughs> exactly. And so you almost have to like not get, not let like the fact that you like this dude so much get in the way of like, but we also need to like maintain this rise against DNA. You know what I mean? Not well, and something you, else. you had every right to at that point. I mean, you had tremendous mm-hmm. success already and it's like, you know, it, it's scary. All of a sudden you have another uh, component come in and it's like, you can't radically have your sound changed. Uh, I mean, uh, it could work, but if it, if it doesn't work, it, it could be disastrous. Totally. Yeah. And so that was, that's why that part was fun. Cause it was like, Oh, like Zach's not just going to be a great, like addition to our band as like a live guitar player and a guy who can play all these old songs, but he's going to understand like, where he can, where he fits in and where he can contribute. And that, that was a cool, like that's a cool part to like what ended up being our biggest song. You know, and that was a hundred percent Zach. That's awesome. So the, the record's finished. Um, you already decided you're going to, going to have re-education through labor as the first single, which came out in August of 2008. Um, when your A&R person at Interscope heard the record, where was Savior on, on his radar? Do you, do you recall the, his thoughts on that or, or her thoughts? Well, I'll tell you this much. We didn't really have an A&R person. Um, when we, really? Yeah, well, we signed to DreamWorks originally with a guy, and, and then DreamWorks folded, and we got thrown into the Interscope Gaffin world, kind of orphaned over there, and they never truly assigned us an A&R person um, uh, until a round appeal to reason. And then we finally got this really cool guy, Tom Panunzio. He's like a... Oh, I, I've, 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 I've worked with Tom. Oh, you know, yeah, he, Tom produced a less than Jake track for the scream Two soundtrack oh, years ago. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Okay. But, but his, that track didn't end up making the soundtrack. It's a long story, but I, yeah, we oh, worked okay. with Tom. We worked with Tom in Atlanta. He, Tom's a, Tom's a legend. So he, he was your A&R person. That's awesome. So he, so he was our A&R and like, but there was, even though he was our A&R, there was like a year or two where we didn't even meet him. And it was kind of like just a lot of bad luck. Like he was coming to a show and then something happened or, you know, so he was, he was supportive from a distance. And I think appeal was the first time he actually came in to the studio. He came out to Fort Collins and that's when we finally met him. And we were nervous about, you know, this industry guy coming in to like, listen to our stuff. We were nervous about bringing anybody from Hollywood into the blasting room, you know, nervous about how Bill was going to take it too. Cause Bill, you know, is, as anti-establishment as it gets, you know, and (laughs) absolutely, you know, the late, the label is the brass and he's always talking about the brass and he's, you know, a little afraid of the brass, you know, the suits, all of it. And I remember Tom came in, I'm thinking, how, how is this going to go, man? Like how is Bill and this guy, how are they going to get along? If they don't get along, it's going to be a mess. And I remember Tom walked in and he didn't really know Bill, you know, and within three minutes, Tom and Bill, got into a conversation about the world's greatest drummer and they almost 
each said Bill Ward at the same exact time. Oh, from, Black, from Black Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> and you could see that we're all this huge sigh of relief on all of us. Like, oh my God, we just watched Bill and Tom fall in love. This was I was going to say, in, instant, instant love affair. <laughs> instant love affair. They were off on the right foot. They both loved Bill Ward. Tom had actually produced a live Black Sabbath uh, record. So Bill wanted to know all about that. I mean, you, you know Tom, and for your listeners who don't, like, oh, yeah. He, proves everything from like the go-go's to sabbath you know to you guys to newfound glory so, like yeah. he was he was there on the rattle and hum sessions for you too you know like he no tom Tom's, right hand tom has kind of worn every hat in the industry he's he's really has a storied and amazing uh fascinating career it's it's really cool what he's done um Absolutely. so um, you're in there now and, and, uh, Tom, and, and for those listeners that don't know, an A&R person, A&R stands for, I never understood this, Tim. It stands for mm-hmm. artist and repertoire. I don't know what the repertoire right. necessarily means, but it stands right. for artist and repertoire. And basically they're, they're the liaison between the band and the label. They're going into the every Thursday morning marketing meeting and they're championing the band and listen to this new track from rise against and this and this and this, and here's the artwork. And they're kind of your voice at the label. And the fact that you guys had the success that you did kind of as or at a label without a damn A&R guy is just mm. it's just te- it's testament to how good the songs and how good uh, I, I mean that kudos to you guys because not many Thanks. bands can not many bands can uh, uh, you know uh, stay above water without without someone fighting for them at a label uh, and I don't care how good your manager is or anything or how good the band is you need somebody so um, w- w- I'm just going to jump ahead when did yeah. you guys know I mean or, and, and who who finally decided that you know what we put out a couple songs, and I remember, um, I can't remember if I heard Reeducation on the radio, but I remember hearing an audience of one on the radio. You guys get played a lot uh, down in Florida, uh, in 97X okay. in, in, in uh, Tampa, Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I heard audience, but then Savior came out, and it was just like, it was like you guys arrived. I mean, it was just blew up. And I mean, it still gets played on rock radio across the, across the nation and the world. Um, when did it finally click like, holy shit, there, this is blowing up. And when did like the label get behind it? And when, when did you guys realize we may have to, may have to learn this and play the damn thing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what's funny is that, um, we, so we put out Riyadh as the first thing we did a video, had success with that, put an audience of one, did a video, had success with that. And then the third single, um, a lot of countries, outside of America did our acoustic song hero of war from that same record. Um, but America deemed it a little too controversial. You know, the song was about, uh, a soldier fighting a war and then shooting an innocent person. And then like all the mental anguish that goes with that. And so America and American radio didn't want to touch it. Whereas the rest of the world, you know, kind of jumped on it and it became, it became a big song elsewhere. Like I can play that song and like, you know, the Netherlands and I can have, you know, kids listen to pop radio singing a lovely word to it. Um, That's awesome. But America when it, when it touch it. And so we moved on to savior, but I will tell you this, we were already starting to close up shop on the appeal to reason tour when savior went to radio. So we were already winding down um, and just finishing up our last couple tours as Saber was going to radio and still not playing the song live. Uh, and, we just, and was that, was that Tom's decision? Who, who finally said, okay, we're going to throw a Hail Mary here and do one last single. Yeah. I think that the, the label had committed to three singles. I have to give kudos to 
our manager at the time, Missy Worth, who, you know, she was the reason we were able to survive over at that label without a uh, A&R and all. And she was our cheerleader and she has deep roots with all that industry world. So um, people know her and respect her. And so she fought hard for us and she got them to commit to three singles. So we knew we would have at least a third single. I'm not sure anybody had a lot of like, you know, a third single is oftentimes it's kind of like the last thing you throw at it before you pull the plug on the record, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. So it wasn't something that we really, um, I don't know, had a lot of, you know, expectations of. We'd hoped it would, we'd hoped it would go to radio and sort of like take us into our next touring cycle, you know, if we, if we got a little success on it. Well, um, and yeah, and from and from a label standpoint, if they if they pump money into two singles and the record didn't sell ten gazillion copies, by the third single, it's kind of like a, you know, there <laughs> it's diminishing returns. You're not going to get too much of a push, and and the fact that the song ended up doing uh, what it did is just it's incredible. It was incredible, yeah, because we were all packing our bags, ready to go back home and like remind our families who we are after touring for like eighteen months straight, <laughs> and then this song went to radio, and then we started getting emails and phone calls like, hey this is getting picked up. Oh, now it's getting picked up more than re-education. Or now it's blowing audience of wild out of the water. And now we're on our, into our second or third month of taking our, our break for the next record. And it's going crazy. You know, like we're getting more radio than we've gotten the entire time we were touring. And all of a sudden, right. Appeal to Reason, which was this record that we were already turning the page on, was getting all this love. And we weren't even on the road. Yeah, so, so you're, you're home enjoying your families, and now they're like, hey, you got to go play the K-Rock Weenie Roast. And we're like, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, was, it was so, it was insane. I mean, honestly, it held the record for the longest running uh, song on the alternative chart. Um, yeah. For a long time, up until this year, I think. That's awesome. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, last question for you just here. I want to touch, touch on something real quick. Um, mm-hmm. When you finally did learn how to play it as a band and you went out and played it this two-part question what was the reaction like immediately because by by the time you guys went out and actually learned it and played it it was blowing up so it had to just go it had to go berserk what 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 was that feeling like it felt good because that song and that intro are so identifiable you know yeah so what happens is like i walk up to the mic and i start the song myself you know and I could hear people singing along and getting excited just because they just from those first notes. Because right sure. when it happens, like I'm playing the I play the first note and I sing the first word all at the same time, and you could see you know people were getting ready because they knew it was coming. They knew it was going to be this intro of me singing quiet, and then everything was going to kick in. You know, and, and all um, and all the heartache, cool. all all the it's it's vindication for this song after having to be embarrassed by the girl you didn't want to leave the studio, having had right. your, book, your booking agent tell you no, this is a damn hit single. You guys are stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing you went through and for it to become this. And lastly, did um, have you guys played it at every Rise Against show since then? Yes, that's it. The answer to that question is yes. Yeah, I think ever <laughs> ever since then, it's always been a part of the set. Yeah. I always make the, the the silly analogy, but you know, if you go see the Eagles, they don't play Hotel California. You're pissed. So right. uh, Rise, Ag- Rise <laughs> Against totally. has to play Savior. Damn it! Um, I know. <laughs> well, uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. Uh, is there anything uh, that you'd like to uh, let the listeners know that's going on in your world or, or the world of Rise Against? Oh, the world of Rise Against. Um, yeah, we're just kind of laying low, um, like the rest of the world is, uh, waiting sure. for the doors to come. In the meantime, we have. A song called Escape Artists 
that came off of our black market sessions. That was only a, a Japanese B-side, but it never made its way to like all the streaming services. So I think people have found it on YouTube, but it's finally coming out on you know Spotify and Apple and all those things um, pretty soon, along with like um, uh, the anniversary for that record, which is coming up pretty soon. And um, aside from that, I'm trying to think of what I'm allowed to talk about. We are we are working on a lot of things right now. <laughs> we're getting excited for the next chapter of Rise Against, which we are we're ready to. Um, embark on as soon as the lights go back on so well, whatever song whatever song you don't like from here on out just make sure you give it attention don't give up on it okay <laughs> trust me i've learned <laughs> i've learned <laughs> tim thank you so much for uh for taking the time out it was a, a a great talk it was really good and and uh i i love this song i've always loved your band and uh I, i'm proud of you guys you deserve every bit uh, of your success yeah you too chris I and mean, you guys too i mean it's been awesome to kind of like watch our careers unfold uh, right, right parallel with each other. So it's been, I, it's been a lot of fun and a lot of, a lot of fat records world bands out there and a lot of bands from our world. So it's good to talk to somebody from the family. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you have a good one. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalist. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. The Rap with Chris and Chris. All right, man. Well, I'm starting to sound like a broken record a little bit because I know I always say this, but that was a really great episode. And as the listeners will soon find out, we've already recorded a bunch of these episodes in advance, but it's starting to become a reoccurring theme that a song that becomes like basically a hit song at one point was almost a B-side or almost didn't make the album, which is pretty wild. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's funny, you know, uh, you uh, let the listeners know, Chris always provides me with notes before we uh, uh, will we'll, we'll do, you know, record an episode. And uh, this, you know, it's usually about 11 or 12 talking points he gives me. And in this particular one, um, you know, I, I remember going through and I Googled a couple extra things. I just wanted to see what the track listing was on Appeal to Reason, uh, <clears throat> the, ri- the Rise Against record. And uh, as I did, I noticed that Savior was number 11. And I'm like, they didn't think this song was a hit. It was a sleeper. <laughs> and yeah, of course, sure. <laughs> you know, we, we got into the episode and, and that's exactly what it was. And uh, and we, we touched that in, that in the episode. It's so amazing. This almost got left off the damn record. Yeah. Uh, something that Tim said that really resonated with me, which when he said it, I'm like, oh, that's me, is he used kind of the analogy of when he writes songs, it's kind of like throwing paint up against the wall, like kind of kind of sounded like he was a Jackson Pollock kind of uh, songwriter, which made sense to me because I 
do that too. I'll, I'll write a song and I'll get into it and I'll be writing lyrics and then, but I won't really think at the time what I'm writing about. And then I'll listen to that song, whether it's the next day or a week later. And I'll be like, Oh, now I see what this song is about. And, uh, so I, I completely related to that when he said that. And I'm sure a lot of songwriters could relate to that. Can you relate to that at all when he said that? Well, absolutely. You know, I, I call that my stream of consciousness. You're just kind of, uh, yeah. pur- purging something, you know, and it happens all the time. You'll just, you'll, you'll, a lot of times for me, it's, it's, I'm, I don't, don't have a lyric pad out or my phone out taking notes. I'm just, I'll start singing nonsense words and, uh, I'll come back to that idea six months, a year later. And that's when you, you have that aha moment of like, okay, now I know what I was talking about then. <laughs> it's right. what I was, you know, it's what I was going through. So maybe, maybe something personal or emotional or painful and, and you don't realize it till later. Yeah. It's like your subconscious comes out through your, through what you're writing. And you know, that's, that's very satisfying in a way when, when you're writing songs and it's, it's very much a release. And, you know, if you are an artist, I don't care if you're a musician or a painter or a sculptor or anything that is, that is your outlet, your release. And I know that sounds, I don't mean for that to sound like pretentious or something. It's just, it's just what it is. And it's what's so great about creating songs and creating music or whatever art you create. Um, you know, personally, I was talking to you about this earlier, but I've had this weird phenomenon where, yeah, it's been a rough year for everybody. Um, but I, I, you know, I felt like the last (laughs) decade or so I was a pretty happy dude, but this has been a rough year. But since I was, you know, kind of always in a good place for a while, when I was writing songs for the bands that I play in. I would always put myself in the shoes of one of my bandmates who was going through something and be like, okay, I'm going to write this song from their perspective. And then when I show them this song, they're going to, they're going to like it a lot because they're going to completely relate to it. So I I would write these songs and you know, I'm proud of these songs. They're good, but then it's so weird, man. It came back around now, like probably the last nine or 10 songs where I did that. I put myself in someone else's shoes and wrote from that perspective. Now it's almost like they were self-fulfilling prophecies. And now (laughs) I listen to these songs I wrote. I'm like, Oh, I wrote these songs about my future self. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, have, have you ever experienced that sort of thing? Yeah. And it's like, a. I was going to say, it's like a, a twilight zone feeling. You're like, wait it a is. second. You know, it's like, you know, spooky in, in a sense. Um, yeah, not uh, exactly that way, but I, I can totally relate from the standpoint of, uh, you know, uh, Vinny's lyrics over the years. You know, I was always, uh, I, I say, the conduit for for his lyrics, my, the, the vessel for him to, to, you know, push this stuff out. He would write the lyrics and, and Roger and I would sing them. And um, a particular song that's on the GNV FLA record, Abandoned Ship, I uh, thought nothing of it. I, I lo- loved the lyrics of it, and I, I sang in the studio. And, man, it was like a full two, three years later. Uh, I was going through a, a really rough breakup, and uh, I, we went out and played that song on some tour, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, he wrote that about me. And I'm like, well, no, he didn't, because I didn't break up three years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, it hit me hard. Um and that's amazing how music can do that to you. And and I, I you know, uh, if I wasn't in the band with a guy, I would have swore he wrote that about me. That's how hard the, the the lyrical content hit me. You know, it's it's wild, man. And I know that you you do custom songs for people, and I know that people are coming at you with 
you know, their story or, you know, or coming at you with from some emotional standpoint. I know every song's not like that. You do jingles and things like that too. But a lot of times there's some sort of emotional aspect to it. So when you're writing, people will come at you with either, whether it's just a story that then you have to interpret and, and, and take what they tell you, or if they're coming at you with actual lyrics, regardless of that, you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And, and the fact of the matter is probably a lot of times you can tap into something that has happened or is happening in your life and, and really get into that zone. You kind of have to as a songwriter, right? Well, yeah. And what's crazy about doing the custom songs and, and, and the jingles, um, especially the, the, the custom song, I mean, the jingles, you know, businesses, you know, whatever, but the custom songs are, are so personal. These people are writing about their children, their wives, anniversaries, birthdays, and they have a sentiment that they want to convey through, through the message of the song. And, it, I could say nine times out of 10, everyone, male, female, doesn't matter. They'll say, you know, I'm not a lyricist. I, I don't really don't know what to say about this. And then they'll write like three pages of stuff about what they want me to write about their, how they feel about their husband or wife. And man, I've gotten some amazing lyrics out of this. Not like, like personally for me to keep, but they've written some stuff. I'm like, damn, that's a really descriptive, you know, uh, a line. It's really cool. So, um, you know, and that's bore out of, emotion it's bore out of pain it's bore out of a number of things and it just goes to show you that you know on a human level we can all kind of relate to one another especially through song um but it's been it's been amazing um to for these folks to let me be a part of their lives and some of this stuff has been deeply personal yeah man for sure i mean i've i've heard a lot of what you've done and uh yeah i mean it's 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 a beautiful thing man it, it really it really is uh that you're offering that, you know, there's other people out there offering that and, uh, to be able to express the way you feel, whether it's through someone else, like you said, like you're a conduit for people's emotions who might not have learned to play music or write music or whatever, but love music. And that's cool that you provide that outlet. And, you know, for me personally, yeah, I'm, I'm a songwriter too. And that has been a big outlet for me. But one of the other things that has become an outlet for me, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I I do use it to, to a certain extent at an emotional level too, as, as crazy as that might sound. But, um, you know, over the past, like five or six years or so, I've taught myself, uh, animation, uh, which was always something that I really liked from the time I was a kid, uh, whether it was cartoons or, you know, then there was web animation type things like Homestar Runner and things like that. And I always wanted to learn how to do it. And then finally it was like a year, I don't know if it was 2014 or something like that. I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this. And it wasn't like I went to school for it. It was more like I went to YouTube university and, (laughs) you know, really like a lot of trial and error and taught myself how to do some animation. And, uh, you know, that has, uh, been a real cool thing, you know, for, I I can say right off the bat, you and I would not be talking on this podcast right now. That's what I was just going to say. That's how we reconnect. I say reconnected. I mean, hell I've known the punchline guys, Chris's band. And I've known Chris for, for 20 going on 20 years now. Um, and when I was doing these custom songs, I wanted to advertise, uh, and I wrote this crazy, uh, it's like 10 songs in one. It shows different styles I can do. And, uh, last year, Chris had done a video, um, for the, a tour that we were on, uh, for Bowling for Soup. He had, uh, animated Roger and I with uh, a couple of the guys in Bowling 
for soup and it came out great. And the light bulb went off this past April. I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to Chris to do this. And, uh, since we, uh, I had him do the animation, it's just, it's spiraled into, uh, all the projects that we currently have going on. And, uh, you know, I want to take a moment to thank everybody out there who has ordered a, a custom song for me. I just, uh, uh, well, by myself, I'm going to say <laughs> I celebrated, but not with anybody in particular. Just myself as an achievement. I I, I, uh, I am happy to say I just did my 100th custom song. I wrote uh, num- number 100. Woo! And uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I got someone celebrating me. Chris, yay. Yes, um, I'll celebrate you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, thank you for the outpouring of, of, of support to all the fans out there. It means a lot. Um, you know, and a lot of you have asked, um, because you've seen the stuff, you can go to kristamakes.com, uh, it directs you to the YouTube page. Um, a lot of you, especially for your businesses, uh, you've taken my custom songs folks and they've, uh, they put it to animation. And, um, so people have asked me, Hey, can you put my, uh, business or my, uh, my custom song to animation? And now we can, we're, uh, Chris and I are now offering that. So, uh, no matter if it's for your band, uh, for you personally, your family, if you want an e-holiday card, uh, waving at your family and, and have you guys depicted as uh, as a uh, cartoon characters uh we can do that uh, put it to custom song and again you can go to uh, christamakes.com uh get you to the youtube page under custom animation you can see chris's work uh it's it's pretty awesome and uh yeah we'd love to uh to do an animation a custom song for you yeah it, it's been a really fun thing for me over the years i started just trying to make funny videos on the internet to basically to make my friends and family laugh. And then that led to, you know, making some music videos. Some people hired me for that, which led to some bigger things. I like my friend, my friend Brendan worked for Weezer and then Weezer hired me to do a video where I animated Rivers Cuomo's tweets for them. And I did (laughs) a music video. Yeah. (laughs) I made a music video for Bowling for Soup. I made one for Anti-Flag. I made one for like a bunch of other bands. Um, And, you know, over the years, I feel like I've refined my skill. You know, I'm not making... I'm not making Rick and Morty, but I'm making, I have my, I have my own style. And I think that, you know, if you are a business or if you are, if you want to make something for your family, if you want me to draw you and, and no matter what it is, I'll make something really cool for you. And I feel like that's really cool for uh, Chris and I that we have, we're coming at it from both angles and offering that service that I don't think, I don't know if there's that many people out there offering, um, custom songs and <laughs> and animated videos. So, you know, we thought that we would put it out there into the world that we're doing this. And if that's something that you're interested in, uh, you know, you can hit us up. Yep. Hit, hit us up, but uh, you can reach us at kristamakes at gmail.com. Again, uh, that YouTube page is at kristamakes.com. Under custom animation, check out the video of uh, <laughs> Chris's phone call with Fat Mike. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this was a great episode, Chris, and uh, I'm looking forward to next week. We will see all of you guys uh, next week, and we're going to leave you right now with our custom animation jingle. We'll see you then. If you want a custom song for your family, for your business, or for your and a cool, unique, animated video that you can post or you can send. Hire Chris and Chris for all your needs. Satisfaction guaranteed. Your idea is the seed and will make the magic grow. So if you want a custom song and a video for your restaurant or for your pet, just hire Chris and Chris to make it happen. It's a choice you won't regret.
Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. 